Well, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 6. Um, for every second you're still talking, I'm going to tack on three minutes. For every second you're talking, I get an extra three minutes. So, you know what? Um, do what you want. I'm in a good mood. My trivia team, only four strong this last week. Uh, we took first, no big deal. So, carried me through. Look at that girl that's over there. All right, we had some fun this week. All right, here we go. We are in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to pray and get us rolling. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, It's true and it's sure. Uh, You are a firm foundation and you are our hope and we can rest in you and trust in you. And I pray as we wrestle with this text today that you would cause our hearts to delight in you, that we would not fear, that we would not fret, that we'd be not overcome with worry but through what you want to teach and share in our lives, there would be a settling and a calmness in each and every one of us. So we thank you for this time to gather, to learn, to grow in the scriptures with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're coming uh, this morning to a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that can be absolutely liberating and encouraging, or to be honest, uh, utterly flooring often used in a way kind of how we Christians sometimes use the term Christian ease. You know, the stuff Christians say that sometimes a little awkward or off or at the wrong moment. And we're in this text that can be one of those portions in which we can consider it the hard sayings of Jesus. And when I say it's a hard saying of Jesus here this morning, it's not a hard saying of Jesus because we can't comprehend what Jesus wants to teach to us. It's not like one of those passages where he's looking at the crowds and he says, you know what, it's easier for this camel to enter through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. And everybody kind of goes, huh, what does he mean by that? It's not a confusing section of scripture or highly use of metaphors, but it's one to be quite honest that we don't really believe ourselves, and if somebody tells us they believe it, we certainly do not believe them. We're going to look at them and go, yeah, right. How, How can you really take that for what it's worth? And so as we look at this section of scripture, I want us to be able to take a deep breath to consider what it means in context of what Jesus is talking about, and then to rightly apply it to our hearts and lives. Very famous, very familiar. You can look at verse 18. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so the crowds would be hearing this and a bit on the edge of their seat listening to Jesus. And then he says this, 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You're not more valued, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, here's the command, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, the first thing I want to do before we get into this text, maybe in a little bit more detail, is to consider it in its entirety. Jesus has gathered a crowd of people to what we're told, I believe in Luke, the mount. And there, from all sorts of regions and areas, they've been drawn to hear the teachings of Jesus. One in which we had our friend Russo up here a couple of months back, and he quoted verbatim. Takes about 15 minutes as he walked us through it. And during this sermon that Jesus is giving, no doubt there would have been people sitting in the crowd going, yep, amen, that'll preach, that's good, that's great, we like that. And then Jesus starts to get into some really difficult things. Things like, hey, if somebody slaps you in the face, give them the other cheek. Yeah, there's some hmms, there's no amens. (laughs) right? Or if your stranger asks you to go one mile with him, go two miles. And if he asks you for your tunic, your coat, go ahead and give it to him. Oh, are you sure, Jesus? And you need to love your enemies and care for those who are down and out and be generous. And there are all these sayings that Jesus begins to preach and teach to these followers that have gathered to him. And you can get to this moment leading up to what we just read. And in that crowd, there would have been some apprehension. I can see it now. Some people going, okay, Jesus, if I do that... If I give to those who beg of me, how will I eat? If I share all the clothes that I have, what will I wear? What about my future? If I truly live out this radical kind of love that you're calling me to, won't I be impoverished? Won't I lose everything? Won't I be taken advantage of? What about my, my wants, my needs? my problems. And you can only imagine 
in a crowd this big, there would have been a very large amount of people, kind of like the first two fifth graders with their hands just half raised so they can get some bucks from me because I'm really generous and I'm teaching. And they just want to answer everything or wait, but, and they have objections to every single thing that's being said. And they're going to be sitting there thinking, what does this really mean for us? And Jesus, being this masterful teacher, begins to answer them before they even have opportunity to ask these questions. And what Jesus does is he does not teach a poverty gospel, one in which says getting rid of everything is next to godliness, though you can't put it past Jesus to ask that of some, as we even see in the scriptures. Nor was he teaching any sense of a prosperity gospel that godliness and wealth, they go hand in hand. The wealthy are godly, the godly are wealthy, and that's a sure sign of God's approval on your life. But what he's talking to this crowd about is our priority. He's talking about our priority, what we value, what we desire. And whatever your priority is, whatever you value, whatever you desire is directly related to your anxiety and your worry. This morning, think about it. What made you worry this week? Honestly, what caused you to lose sleep? What made you anxious? Jesus lists in verses 8, 19 through 24, three things. He says, your treasure, essentially the physical, material, money. Not having it, having it, not wanting to lose it. That will cause you to worry. What you set your eyes on, maybe it's power, influence that I need to have this in order to be somebody, or what you desire, good health, comfort, children, marriage. And these are the things that tend to consume our thoughts, consume our lives, and cause us to be anxious and to worry and fret about. And the problem that we see this morning is not having rightly ordered priorities but disordered priorities that consume our thoughts. Think about it. Jesus never says finances. Jesus never says that children or marriage or singleness, that those are things that aren't good things in and of themselves. But when they become the ultimate things that consume us, we have them out of order, disordered. And in that moment, we begin to fret and worry when those things are at that harm, risk of being taken from us. So what we want to look at is the problem. We live in an anxious world, don't we? I run into anxious people all the time. There's this false narrative that's gone on, and in the West, it's this. There's been this faith in the West that progressiveness moving forward, advancements in the world, is going to bring in utopia for each and every one of us. It's that history is moving towards some kind of golden future for us all this morning. That's the promise that the West has been built upon. And in one sense, technologically, maybe even wealth, we've seen the West excel in these areas, even causing some areas of ease in our lives. We can get more done quicker with the use of technology. And we've seen how prosperity in our culture has caused some to definitely kick back and enjoy as we've progressed in that way. But the West is regressing 
relationally and emotionally. Did you hear that? You think about the West. It is regressing emotionally. Uh, My wife and I were watching something on Netflix last night, and this person was talking about dating. It was just some kind of TV show, something, you know, it's not in in the Christian world, in the Christian realm. And the comment, this movie was based in like 2003, was dating today is so different. You break up in emails and texts. You don't have to do things face-to-face anymore. We emotionally regressed. We can't have conversation. We can't look at one another. And what this has done in our culture has created a tension and a high level of anxiety for each and every one of us. The myth of progress is creating disruption in our culture. Now, specifically this morning, because Jesus is talking about don't be anxious and anxiety. Stats are fun. We'll throw a few out. Over 40 million Americans wrestle with anxiety. I think it was something like 213 million people in the world have anxiety issues. That is only including those who are seeing somebody who are being counted for. In 2020, great year for surveys. In 2020, 62% of respondents reported experiencing some degree of anxiety or another. 62% means in this room, there's about 100 of us, 62 of us would report wrestling with anxiety. Fear and anxiety is not some small grouping that's shoved off into the corner where they're just experiencing their own little weird world and their weird thing. It is something that has overtaken our culture at whole, at large. Because this is a safe place, and I know you won't judge me. A couple of years ago, um, I'd been going through just some things and feeling stress and pressure. Uh, and one night, I just felt completely incapacitated, couldn't move, laying on the floor. And my wife's like, now will you go to the doctor? <laughs> That's what it took. So I go to the doctor, and ah, you're healthy, man. You're like 35. There's nothing wrong with you. You're Okay. Great, cool. See what I told you, hon? I don't need a doctor. Just need to get through my problems. Well, some other stuff happened in our lives. Crazy stuff, you know, like shared with you before. My wife had a pretty bad miscarriage, almost lost her life. Uh, just, just some other things as well were piling up. And I can remember going for these drives. Uh, in fact, one time we were coming back from Prineville from some friends' houses, at friends' house, and I couldn't breathe. I just was feeling this welling up in my heart, and I don't look at my wife, and I just keep a straight face, and I keep driving, and I plow through it and get home and go, that's weird. It happened again and again and again. One day, about 9.30 in the morning, I'd already had three meetings that morning. That's a lot for 9.30 in the morning already. Dealt with some things, and I hopped in my truck, and during that time, I was also trying to intermittent fast and do some health things as well, and I'd had too much coffee that morning, and I got in my truck, and I went, oh my gosh, I gotta get an oil change in my wife's car, and I literally had that thought as I was pulling out, and I began to feel my heart pump, and then my heart stop. What is this? So I drive a little bit, because I'm smart, 
and I continue to feel that feeling. And I grab my phone, and my wife has all the kids, and she's down in Bend, and she's doing some grocery shopping, and I'm going to call my wife, but I accidentally FaceTime her. <laughs> Can't make this up. And, and I see her on the phone, and I'm like, um, hon, I'm like two miles from the hospital, and I think I'm having a heart attack, and I'm dying. All the kids hear it. She hears it, right? She sees my face. It's ghost white. What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm driving to the hospital. I'm, I'm, I'm like going to get there. I'm really, really close. So I pull in to where that little round area is, and I park my car all wonky. And I, listen, I'm a little dramatic sometimes. You wouldn't know it. And I walk into those doors, and they part for me, and I throw myself on the floor in the waiting room like this. And they said, sir, what are you doing? I'm dying. That's why I'm here. (laughs) Sir, you have to get up. I'm dying. I cannot get up. You're arguing with us. You have to get up. You can talk. You're fine. This went on for a good, like, two minutes. I'm in the middle of the floor. People are walking around me, and they're like, somebody get this guy a wheelchair. So (laughs) they get me a wheelchair, and I'm feeling a little bit better because I'm somewhere safe at this time. And they take my blood pressure, which happened to be 60 over 30. Did, did you drive here? Yes. You are an idiot. <laughs> they didn't say that, but they wanted to. What, what were you doing? How did you even get here? If you're 60 over 30 now, what were you when you were driving? And they took, you know, whatever the heart scan is and did all that stuff and then handed me, they've got probably a stack of half a million of these packets on panic attacks, anxiety disorders, and problems. And I was just humiliated. Like, oh my goodness, how did this happen? How did I get here? What's going on? I share all this this morning with you. It's kind of fun because I can look back on it now and joke and laugh. But in all seriousness, I'm not speaking out of my inexperience, but my experience. I'm not speaking out of a position that hasn't been humbled by this myself. And this morning, as we approach Jesus' words, he says, why are you anxious? This quote comes from Sarah Young, and she wrote this, anxiety is picturing a future without Jesus. Very Christian of me to say that, but you're at church, so welcome to church. Anxiety is picturing a future without Jesus. Now, when I think about this, I think about it in two ways. The first way is, is it's picturing a future future. You know, that future that one day when you pass, you will be with him. Well, it's picturing one, that future without Jesus. That will drive you insane and to be anxious But we also talk about the here and the now, and it's even picturing a future here and now without Jesus walking through, walking with us in the midst of whatever it is that we are going through. As a follower of Jesus, there wasn't one time in the last 10 years where I woke up and imagined my life without Jesus. This was not some intentional, cognizant motive that I had deep inside of me that I thought, oh no, Jesus is not with me. But over time, slowly as fear, as worry, as struggles, as bills, as all the rest started to come into my life, I began to think, how are we going to make it? Where are you in the midst of this God? 
Deep down, knowing surely God is good, but feeling more like the first, I don't know, 22 verses of what Joel read this morning, that was depressing. It took all the way to about verse 23 for things to actually change for Jeremiah as he is lamenting. And yet what happens for us is we begin to picture this life without Jesus. Worry, anxiety, they have an undertone. They have a murmur on some level that says, Jesus, you're not all that is. In fact, my money, my health, my children, my job, that priority's way up here. And if that's taken from me, who am I? Who am I? Whereas if we can picture our future with Jesus, we can then rightly order our lives that says, even if this is taken from me, even if this happens, I still have footing. I still have a firm foundation. I still have a rock on which I stand. That is that Jesus is with me, that God is good, that he is faithful. And I can begin to look at my life under a different lens and context. But what's happened is we as a people have developed a short-sightedness in our lives that simply sees the here and now and what's before us, or maybe one or two days forward, and we are not able to hold this grander picture of not only eternity, but next year or five years from now that says, you are with me then, you are with me now, and you will be with me in the future. Christians, we are suffering. We are regressing as we begin to absorb what's going on in the world around us, thinking consumerism is going to save us, technology is going to save us, wealth is going to save us, when in fact only Jesus is. And we have a problem going on that causes us to picture a Jesusless future. And it creates an anxiety issue within each and every one of us. How does it get this way? Jesus is saying... You are worrying because. Now, here's why. Two reasons rooted in the scriptures. You worry because you want the control that God has. Take it to the bank, write it down. You worry because you are not thoughtful about God's care for your life. Not me, that's harsh. Yes, you. Yes, me. I'm not thoughtful about God's care in my life. Jesus is going to make two arguments here this morning that we can take to the bank, we can cash this check, and we can believe, trust, and rest in. But I'm going to tell you something. It's annoying. It's hard. It's kind of like when that Christian comes up to you and speaks Christianese. Oh, don't worry. It's going to work out for good to all those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Or if they're like a deep theologian, they'll go, Genesis 50, what God intended for evil or excuse me, what you intended for evil, brothers, God can work for good. I'm like, yeah, but shut up right now. I don't, I, I don't wanna hear that. I know that, but I don't wanna hear that right now. I wanna, I wanna soak a little bit. I wanna feel a little bit. I wanna weep a little. And there's some honesty in that. We should be allowed to do that a little bit, okay? I need you to hear that this morning. Do not be insensitive to that, but we can't fully push out the truth and the reality that is actually spoken in the scripture. And if you look carefully at what we just read this morning, this is fun. If you look carefully in a very general way, it's a fun pairing right there. He's saying the source of anxiety 
is the human will to power. Okay, I'm gonna read that again. The source of anxiety is the human will to power. The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis early on that God creates and he makes, and we have talked about this so much at Redeemers. We're under God, but over creation. That's the place that we're to be in. You are made to rule. You are made to reign as kings, as queens, over all of creation, to rule over everything except God himself. But what did Adam and Eve do? They said, we want more. We want more power. We want more independence. We want more of our ability. And in doing so, we actually become less Trying to be more human, we become less human because we said, we want the power, we want the control. And this story of Genesis is the reality for each and every one of us still today. I can't trust you, God. I have to trust in myself. We respond for the same need of control that comes because we're built to be kings, we're built to be queens, we're built for glory, but we respond just like them. And we say, no, 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 but I want it my way and on my terms. This is a really interesting quote. And I found it in one of uh, Keller's books, but it's by Reinhold Niebuhr. I said his name right. And he has this fascinating statement about the relationship of theology to psychology. And he says, the school of modern psychology, which regards the will to power as the most dominant of human motives, has not yet recognized how basically it's related to insecurity or basically anxiety. The human ego does not feel secure and therefore grasps for more power in order to make itself secure. So when you're insecure and you want to be secure, what, what do you do? You grasp for power. You want more power to make yourself feel more secure. It does not regard itself as sufficiently significant or respected and seeks to enhance its position in the world. Um, Brett, like layman's terms, what does that mean? We're insecure because we want power and we want control. But the more we want power, the more we seek control of our lives, the more resent we have for God because he is the one who is in fact in control of everything. We want his power. We want his power. So here's what this means for us. Personally, I have done my best to create a world in which I have control. This is me speaking and maybe you can relate. I live in a pretty safe neighborhood. I drive very, one of my vehicles is a 95 F-150. It's steel, man. Uh, you hit that with your, I don't know, Prius, good night, okay? So, so we've got a lot of things and checks and balances with our children and what we allow them to watch and not watch. And we have all of this sense of security that I've built up and I've really trusted in it. I've really trusted in it. And I've had this then illusion that everything is just fine and safe. That's all it is, an illusion. We've all had an illusion that everything is just fine, that everything is just safe, and we built these worlds around us in which our world can't be cracked. But in fact, we have to look at the one who actually holds it up. Jesus says in this text, who of you by worrying 
can add a single hour to your life. Now, that's what every human wants to do. We want to add time to our life. We want to add more moments to our life. We want to add more security to our life. We're all sort of in this rat race that participates in that. We want the power God has. But here's the question. Who's been keeping your life going all these years anyways? (laughs) Not you. Not you. The number of us who have stories that say we should have died. My parents are in here, but going 100 down Ross Antley while a kid climbed out the sunroof window? Yikes. (laughs) Something bad should have happened. Luckily, it didn't. Luckily, it didn't. And so we have this illusion. Let me put it another way. When the doctor comes in with bad news or the boss comes in with bad news, suddenly we get anxious. Why? Because now we feel out of control. It's the threat that reveals the illusion that we've been living all these years, the illusion that we're in control. Jesus is going to ask us something really hard this morning. I'm going to ask something really hard this morning. You need to first and foremost wrestle with the idea that you are not in control. You're not in control. The danger that is all around us, it triggers the anxiety. The anxiety is essentially showing up in this new precarious condition, but at the deepest level, it's showing what you knew all along, that you are not in control. And we're anxious, here's why, because we disbelieve and dislike the fact that we're totally dependent on the supporting power of God. It's infuriating. I'm a self-made Man, I'm a self-made woman, independent, right? That's who I am. And Jesus is saying, hold up. I want you to consider some things. Now, what do we do about this? Can you trust God to run your life? Can you trust God to run your life? The first argument Jesus makes is the birds of the air. And he says, go to the word and see that God is in charge. He says, consider the birds. God's in charge of them. God gives them what they have need of. You, you don't have even the ability to add one minute to your life. God has all the power. God is in control. God is a God of providence. Do you know how to use that argument, though, on your heart? That's the tricky thing. When we begin to look at the circumstances and the stuff that's happening to us or which wasn't happening to us, Are you able to say in that moment, I know that God is with me and he knows of what I have need of before I even knew that I had need of it, that he is able to care for me. Now, there's an argument within that. If I'm really going to entrust my life to God, give myself to him in that way, what if he asks of me something that I don't like or want? If you have a king that has never asked of you something you have not wanted, you do not have a king. You are the king. You are the queen. But when we have a king that says, can you trust me that you might suffer? Can you trust me that there might be pain? Can you trust me that I know what's best for you at the end of the day? And it may not feel like it right now and in this moment, but I have a purpose, I have a plan, I have an ability that as you go through this, 
Just like Joseph, what your brothers intended for evil, and they did intend that for evil, and God did not stop it. He allowed for that to take place. I am going to work for your good. And in Joseph's case, it wasn't just his good, but it was the good of his entire family. How many years did that take? 15, 20? Goodness. How many of you have actually had the patience to wait on God that amount of time in a faithful manner? We're so short-fused and have very little patience when it comes to God wanting to work in our lives, saying, you're not in control, you don't have this handled, and we're freaking out down here. Why? Because we're not able to say, you're wise enough, you're smart enough. You know, this wise king who in his wisdom had a plan for our redemption, that he would be crucified for us. But then we're like, I'm pretty sure you don't know how to get me through my week, God. How do you feel about that? Can you trust him? So we have this anxiety issue because we actually look at God and we say, I don't know if I trust you at the end of the day, God, with my day-to-day life. We're gonna look how to work on this in our heart in just a second. I'm gonna take my extra time. The grass of the field argument. This is the care factor. A difficulty of believing God and his character. Now, this is not a new argument that I'm going to use on you guys. It is something that I talk about often and constant. But I want you to think about this. Most of our problems with God, and if you're not a Christian in here, most of your problems with God are not intellectual problems, but they're emotional problems. They are problems of, where was he when I was in need? Where was he when I was suffering? Where was he when I had problems? Does this God care for me? Does he know that I exist? And if so, why has he not stepped into my circumstance, stepped into my situation, redeemed and rescued me out of this present trouble? Where are you, God? And we accuse God constantly of this care factor, saying God obviously does not care about me or my circumstances. Because there's been too many silent nights and not the Christmas kind, but the bad kind where my pillow is wet with my tears of pain and suffering and joylessness because you have not shown up, God. I think 99% of us have experienced those kinds of moments. Where is your care? And Jesus brings in, this care argument, and there's a little bit of apprehension towards it. What are you talking about? The care of God. Can I trust you, God, to care for me? Can I really take you at your word that you are going to watch over me, that you have love towards me, that you hear me, see me, that you know me? Jesus says, you're anxious this morning because you're not thinking. You're not thinking about God's care for you. This is absolutely critical because faith in Jesus, faith in God, this whole idea of faith is not the absence of thinking. That's what some people think faith is. It's just you idiot Christians. Your minds are just so emptied and filling it with this garbage. No, actually faith says, I want you to think. I want you to think about God's providence, God's care, God's faithfulness, God's love. Faith is thinking. Anxiety is the absence of thinking. It is. 
Anxiety is the absence of thinking, fear and distress. Why? When you're sitting and listening to your heart run off to the mouth, that's what makes you feel scared. When your heart starts to ramble and it just reacts to situations, that's when you're not thinking. When six weeks ago your laundry room was flooding with water and you go to fight or flight and you freak out and the world's coming to an end and all the vacation money's going to be gone, it's not, not even close, right, right, and you just freak out, my heart takes over and I'm not thinking. Well, what are we to do? I'm going to tell you something that may sound a little weird at first. Stop letting your heart talk and start talking to your heart. Stop letting your heart talk. Your feelings, as Michael talked about, and as we prayed about in our pre-gathering prayer there, just feelings that are so up and down and emotional, and why do we have these, and why is it like this? Our heart wants to always tell us all sorts of things, and it's constantly freaking out. Our heart lives in a world of chaos. Start talking to your heart, not listening to your heart. Think before you speak, and then speak to your heart. How do I do that? When we think that God doesn't have our best interest in mind because it's not going how I want, we actually have to think, how has God operated in the past? Not only in my life, but in the history of Scripture, in the history of humanity. How has God cared for and treated those people? He loves, he cares, he's rescued, he's redeemed. So instead of listening to your heart, start talking to it and see as God begins to deal with our anxiety as we look at the facts of his faithfulness in our lives. What does this look like? I just want to give you guys an example real practically. If you want to, you can flip over to Psalm 55. Psalm 55 I'm gonna read this to you. It says in verse one, give ear to my prayer, O God. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me, answer me. I am restless in my complaint. I moan. How's he doing? How's he doing? Bad, okay? I'm moaning, I'm complaining, I'm in trouble, I'm having a hard time. Sounds like the human experience. Attend to me, God, because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. Horror overwhelms me, and I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. He is not at fight. He is at flight. I just want this over with. I just want this to be done with. God, you're nowhere to be found. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruins is in its midst. Oppression and fraud. Do not depart from its marketplace, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is their dwelling place and in their hearts. 
Verse 16, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God, I will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friend. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Listen, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So what does he do? In those first 15 verses, he talks about his heart's anguish, the chaos in the city, is sounding familiar? Trouble, pain, and enemies all around him. Essentially saying things are hard. David does not pretend that they're not. Jesus does not pretend that there's not troubles that you're going to face. He says, take therefore no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow has plenty of its own troubles. He's giving us permission to say, today is hard. This moment is difficult. I'm feeling pain and anguish and suffering. But what are we to do? Verse 16 says, but I call to God. David is not a self-made man. He turns to God for the following to be saved, to be heard, for redemption, for justice. Then what does he do in verse 22? He talks to his heart about God. What does he say? Cast your burden on the Lord. He's telling his heart this. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He reminds himself of his present condition but also the truth and the reality that God is with him. So church, I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you what's going on chemically inside of you, psychologically, what's making up everything. However, as a a pastor and a pretend theologian, I know that our problems are complex. I know that humans are complex. I know that we're made up of more than just spiritual. There's physical, there is mental, there's physiological, there's things going inside of us. And so I know when we're talking about anxiety, there's not some simple solution or silver bullet that's going to get you past this. You have to hear and understand that. But from the theological, biblical side, let me tell you something. A lot of us are letting our heart do the talking and we need to start talking to our heart. What are we going to say to our heart? What are we holding on to today that you have no business caring about? Because this man, he says, there is righteousness in God. There is hope. There is peace in him. Last thought and then I'll send us on our way. We're talking about this idea of what do we do? We, we speak to our heart. But what are some preventative things when it comes to anxiety or maybe some ways to begin to climb out of the funnel that we've fallen into that was very wide and has gotten more narrow, more narrow, more narrow. And all of a sudden you're looking up going, how do I get out of this thing? Three things that Jesus said with priorities. Don't lay up treasure in heaven. Excuse me. Jesus didn't say that. Why aren't you correcting me? Don't lay up treasure on earth. Don't store up here. And essentially what he's saying, if you want to battle this, be generous, be hospitable, be in community. When he talks about this idea of light and what we take in, essentially talking about power, positions, lust, these problems, 
He says to battle this, turn to servanthood, solitude, and silence. Sit before me. When it comes to desires, what your heart truly desires, what you're devoted to, how do we battle not desiring everything in this world? He says, turn to worship, praise, and thanksgiving. Jesus wants you, Jesus wants me to listen to his arguments this morning. Are you anxious? About 65 to 70 of you are probably anxious in this room today. That's the statistics. That's just what it says. Are you anxious? What are you anxious about? And where do you need to reorder those priorities? Jesus says, you have permission today. Deal with it. Deal with it today. How? He's with you. And he will work things together for good. That's his promise. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word and your faithfulness. God, and right now, just knowing that I'm one amongst many that can wrestle with anxiety in this room. I'm one amongst many that can turn my raised hand into a fist and shake it at you and question your care and your concern for me. Knowing that this is a real issue that's permeating even within the church. Pray that your Holy Spirit would move in such a way that peace and shalom enter in our hearts and we would stop and think. You care, you care. And talk to our hearts, you've been faithful. God, I pray that we would receive that love that you have shown us and that we would not consider a Jesusless future that we know that you are with us. And because of that, we can have peace and we can have hope as that you move in this way. In Jesus' name.